Thanks for listening to the Refuel Podcast. Be sure to tune in every Thursday for a new episode. So how many of you were really tempted to sing along? Because that's just like one of those songs that every... So how many of you were singing along? Yeah, I saw some of you singing along. So just to kind of intro, um, you guys can come up and have a seat. Um, just, just to kind of intro um, that song and what we're... Um, and, and what we're talking about, we're doing a series called Punch Fear in the Face. And last week we talked about one part, one sp- particular like aspect of fear that we need to punch in the face. We talked about FOMO, right? And as we talked about FOMO, we talked about how contentment in Christ was a sucker punch to FOMO. Um, tonight we're talking about the fear of failure. So that's why Freddie Mercury. By the way, don't you think if Matt Johnson put on that suit and had just a mustache, he might be able to pull it off? I think he could. Okay, but the, the, reason, <laughs> the reason I played, yeah, I had to be very selective as which you know, Freddie Mercury shots I, I played, you know, um, but the reason I played that song is because we all know that song, right? How many of you, you be honest, you, you were on a team and you won a game, you won like a big championship or you won something that was exciting and you all started singing, I, I've done that before, we are the champ, and there's that one part, that one in the middle of the course that says, no time, not for losers, for losers, you know, that's how he sings it, no time for losers, so I, I googled loser and this popped up, so I just, you know, blame Google, but um, yeah, but no time for losers. That's kind of the way that our society runs, right? We always want to talk about people who are successful. We always want to talk about people who are winning. And as soon as somebody in sports or anywhere starts not doing so hot, we don't have time for losers. And if, I think if we're honest, we, real, we think that sometimes that happens even like in our situations. Like I remember being, well... I still am in a family, but, uh, you know, in a family when yeah, I always felt like I had to be the best so that I could get the attention instead of my brother or my sister or whatever. Uh, does it, doesn't it seem like in school, the people who get the most, attentions are the, pe- or the most attention are the people who kind of like suck up to the teacher? Yeah, and they're the successful people. How many of you are those people? No. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you're the people that we love to hate. No. Uh, but success is celebrated. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but here's the problem. Um, You know me, I like my numbers and I like the studies and everything, so I looked at a study about teens and fear and anxiety. And the number one, you can go to the next slide there, Matt, the number one um, thing that teens struggle with um, is anxiety and fear. Seven in ten teens see anxiety as a major problem among their peers, and you're like, thank you, Captain Obvious, Matt. You know, <laughs> like we all kind of know that, right? But that means out of every, we probably have about 100 people here tonight, but out of, out of every, all of us, 70 people here see fear and anxiety as a major problem. The next thing that was interesting is 61% of teens feel like they have to, feel like they have a lot of pressure to get good grades. Now, you, you may think that's higher, right? Because, uh, you know, how many of y'all are feeling the, you know, you're, you feel like you're, you're in that time where you're feeling the pressure, you know, you're, you're feeling the pressure. It's, it's interesting that that is the number one cause, they, they say, or the number one factor of fear among teenagers. 61% say they feel a lot of pressure to get good grades. The second closest one was, they feel, was, was that teens feel pressure to fit in socially, and that was all the way down at 29%. 
So that's a, you know, a big deal. And over 90% of teens say that having a job or career they want is this extremely important goal. So that means that like you're already, if you're in high school, you're already thinking like I've got to get this, like I've got to be on a roll like every year. I've got to get the straight A's. I've got to get this particular score on this, this thing right out of the pit of somewhere called the ACT. Like, like I, I've got to have all these things so that I can be successful at life. And that's kind of what we live in, but then here's the flip side of that is we start thinking, what if I don't get the score that I need to get on the ACT? What if I don't make the team that I want to try out for? And what if all of a sudden I feel failure and I experience failure? There was an interesting, I hope I don't bore you with my studies, but I think this is really interesting. There's an interesting study about the difference between your generation, which we talked about last week, is Gen Z, and my generation, the millennial generation, they say our generations are similar just in this aspect when you compare them to the, you know, I know you like to talk about them, the boomers. Um, and and here, is, here is the difference, is that people who were boomers, they were, that are you know, maybe a little bit older than you are and even than I am, were brought up in a society where everything was, was guilt or innocence, meaning if you messed up, if you failed, if you screwed up, it was just that, it was a mistake. And you dealt with it, you served your time in jail, or you, you, know, you did better next time, and you, know, you moved on from that mistake. They say that millennials and Gen Zers don't live in a, that guilt-innocence culture is gone, and now it's an honor-shame culture. And when you make a mistake, when you fail, you don't just make a mistake, you become a mistake. You see yourself and others see you as a mistake. When you fail... You see yourself and other people seem to see you as a failure. So when you miss that shot that everybody's counting on you to make, you don't just say, I'll do better next time. You feel, you almost wear the failure. And we compare that to, and you know, I'm a parent now and I realize that um, you know, sometimes I set unrealistic expectations for how my seven-year-old daughter should behave and, 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 and act and be able to do things and I've learned that I got to be really careful the way that if she messes up, the way that I, like, like I correct her. Because I remember that when I would mess up or if I was afraid that I would mess up, my first thought was, what would my parents think of me? Yeah, I was the oldest among yeah, four kids, and I was always concerned about failing for this reason. My parents are so busy dealing with the issues of my younger siblings, if I mess up, it'll be a big letdown to them. And I was afraid... Sometimes still am afraid to fail, not just because I'd let myself down, but because I'd let my parents down and that they would see me as a failure. So, I, yeah, I don't know what, you know, particularly you are afraid of, you know, you have, kind of have coming up in the future or that is on you now and you're afraid of failing or maybe you have failed and, like, the, you, you didn't get the score you wanted or you didn't make the team you wanted to make or, you know, you didn't reach that goal that you set. But I've got some good news tonight it started out with bad news. And, and the good news tonight, it actually comes from 1 John 4.18 that we read before, is that Jesus promises a perfect love that casts out fear. So if we want to punch fear, that was a pretty good punch. Um, if we want to punch fear of failure in the face, we need to be able to receive the perfect love of Jesus. And this is what's so cool about the perfect love of Jesus is that most of us, when we think of love and when we think of being accepted, we think of it as being performance-based, meaning if I achieve this, people will accept me. If I do this or I get this grade, my parents will be proud of me. 
This is the great thing about the love that we're going to talk about of Jesus, is that the love of Jesus is not performance-based. God, that's kind of the big thing on your fill-in-the-blank sheet if you're using it. God's love for you is not performance-based. That makes sense. We get that. But I wanted to take it one step further and make it even more, I guess you could say, like applicable or real for you and say it like this, that you, to Jesus, you are more than a score on a test. That Jesus sees you way more than that. You know, people that look at your transcripts when you go to your, your, your application, when you go to college, you're just going to see your numbers. Yeah, a coach, when he's reviewing, he's going to mainly look at your stats. You may dread when your report card comes home and your parents see it. I used to like sit by the mail, they used to mail them out, you know, you couldn't, before you could, this is going to make it sound old, before you get online and look them up. We had the internet, we just didn't have the grades posted on the internet. Yeah, I would hang, hide out by my mailbox and I'd intercept the I'd intercept my report card because I was scared to death. You are more than a score on a test. And I'm maybe too ambitious tonight, but um, tonight for the passage, we're going to go to Romans 8. And we're going to try to do the whole chapter of Romans 8 in one night. And we only have like 10 minutes left. So it's going to be like taking a drink from a fire hydrant. It's been known as one of the most like, you know, heavy passages or chapters in the Bible, but daggone it, we're going we're gonna to give it a try. So turn to Romans chapter 8, and we're going to read the first 17 verses, and then we're going to kind of comment on it. So let's go to Romans chapter 8, start in verse 1, and 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, here we go. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit." For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the thing of the, of the flesh. For those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the, minds on the, the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Jesus from the dead will also give you life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we're debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if, you, but if the, by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. This is an important verse here. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by who we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And if children, heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we might also be glorified by Him. Whew, that was a lot of verses to read. Um, but what we're going to do is we're going to see all these verses kind of point to one fact, and it's the first point tonight, and it's this. It's that Christ loved you or God loved you first. We may be missing a slide there, Matt. Maybe, maybe not. God loved you first. There it is. Uh, God loved you first. First John 4, 
verse 19, we read verse 18, verse 19 says, we love him, meaning God, because he first loved us. And those first 17 verses of Romans chapter 8 tell us all the things that happened when we became saved. God loved us first by doing this. He saved us. And all these verses that we just read, we're not going to have time to hit each one of them, obviously, tell us all the things that happened when we were saved. Because what we learn is that when we were, before we were saved, before we put our faith in Jesus, I hope everybody in here did that. I'll give you the opportunity to do that if you haven't later. But before you were saved, there were some things that were true about you. The first is that you were a lawbreaker. You did not obey God's law. Therefore, the second thing is you became an enemy of God. You turned your back on God and you turned against God. When that happened, we became full of sin. We became slaves to sin. I mean, you ever have that thing going on where you like, you know what the right thing to do is, but you always do the wrong thing instead? Like, you know what you should do, even if it's something really basic, but you don't do the right thing. The Bible says it's because we're kind of like in slavery or bondage to sin. And the next thing we learn here is that slavery to sin, being a sinful person, leads to death. It leads to an eternity of separation from God in a place called hell. That's not a good thing, right? And then as we're dead in our sins, we become a slave to fear because we know that we can't seem to work ourselves out of this big problem that we're in. So we're trying to somehow make God happy with us or make God love us so that we can get out of hell, get into heaven, get a relationship with God and save ourselves from this stuff. But then we realize we're spiritually poor. We can't save ourselves. And we become full of shame because like we talked about earlier, we see all our failures and we identify with them. And that's what we see when we look in the mirror. Not a very happy picture, but we learned some really awesome things in these verses that we read. That we went from lawbreakers to free from a judgment of condemnation because Jesus fulfilled God's law for us. We broke the law, Jesus fulfilled the law, and when he died for us, his right living was credited to us. I know this is real heavy, it's going to get real real here soon, okay? So just... Bear with me, okay? So, so, so we're no longer lawbreakers. We used to be enemies with God. We read verses 6 through 8, we learn that we have peace with God. Uh, verse 6 says, set the mind on the Spirit, it's life and peace. Because Jesus paid our sin debt, he paid for our sins. Now we are at peace with God. And not only are we to go from enemies to God to at peace with God, we went from slaves to sin to having the ability to do right and to please God. In, in, in verse 9, it says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but you are in the Spirit if the Spirit of God dwells in you. It keeps going. We were slaves to fear. We were dead in our sins. What did Jesus do? We went from being dead in our sins to being, in verse 6, life and peace. Verse 10, um, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. So now, because Jesus saved us, we're no longer enemies of God. We're no longer destined for a place called hell that's a very real, eternal, terrible place. But we're saved and we'll have eternal life with Jesus in heaven. Then we were slaves to fear, but what happened? Instead of fearing God because we were enemies of him, now we are, it says, his sons and daughters. We went from being God's enemy to being God's child. It's incredible. You see that in verse 15. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You received the spirit of adoption to sons by who we cry, Abba, Father. We were spiritually poor, but now we learn in verse 17 that we are heirs with Christ, meaning we have an inheritance 
a will due to us. We are spiritually rich with Christ. We used to be full of shame. And look at the end of the verse 17. It says, we're fellow heirs with Christ that we might suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. That one day we're going to be in heaven where everything is perfect and, and God is already working to perfect us and work, yeah, work to make us more like Jesus right now. So all these things happen, which is incredible, but some of us as Christians, we like to think, like we like to put up our nose, put our nose up in the air and think, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm much better than you, Christian, you big sinner. You know, Christian's back on the front row, I got to pick on him again. You know, so I'm so much better than you. But wait, you didn't work for your salvation. You did nothing to earn your salvation. God loved you first. Sometimes we think the entrance exam to heaven is like a scantron. That, that picture brings me PTSD, because when I went to, you, you know, they use these at the school I went to, and you, you had to fill in the right, and going to heaven is not about filling in the right blanks, it's about a blood test, it's are you a child of God or not, do you have faith in Jesus, and they actually don't take your blood to get into heaven, so then you don't like needles, it's okay, right, so, so we don't work to earn favor with God, God loved us first, how do we get saved? The next chapter over in Romans, Romans chapter 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus, is, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he rose from the dead, you will be saved. It has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with what God did through you. And we learn about that in those first 17 verses. So God loves you first. Next thing we learn is God loves you in your successes and, whoop, God loves you in your successes and in your failures. This next section of verses is a little more bite-sized, a little easier to read and digest. Verse 18, it says, I consider the sufferings of this present time aren't worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. For creation awaits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subject to futility, not willingly, because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from sin, from its bondage to corruption, in order to obtain the freedom of the glory of children of God. So we all know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grow, groan inwardly as we eagerly await for the redemption of our bodies. I'm going to kind of stop there and go to the next slide. And that's where we learn God loves us despite our successes and despite our failures, one way or the other. There's this huge time that we have to wait, right? It's nice being saved, but we know that, like, hey, like, one day I'll be in heaven, like, I'll be strumming a harp or whatever, floating on a cloud. You know, it's going to be nice, but now it's hard. Yeah, now I'm facing a, yeah, a, a midterm, or, you know, I got to take, like, a, like, an algebra test, and they started mixing numbers in with, or letters in with my numbers, and that's messed up, and yeah, you're dealing with struggles, like, right now. So, it's kind of like a, a sign. John was on a trip with me one time. We went across the country, and we passed one of these signs that said, like, next, next gas station, like, 150 miles or something. And we broke down, like, halfway in between, like, you know, at that point, and, and, and yeah, it, it's a long ways off, is what it's saying. And for us, yeah, heaven, oh, yeah, it feels like a long ways off that it's talking about the glor glorification of our bodies and all this stuff. We're in the here and now. How do I live and how do I deal with that? Well, it, there's one word that kind of is repeated a lot, and it's the word groan. And 
I don't know when the last time is that you groaned. Uh, you know, it's probably when you had to get up out of bed. Your mom's like, wake up. Like, you know, like you, you groaned, right? But it's, it's repeated three times in that word in the Greek. It's um, stenazo, which means to like pray inwardly with grief or to groan inwardly. So some of you are really like expressive people. Where are my expressive people at? You're, you're, you're the ones that don't mind raising your hand. You know, you're, you're like everybody looking at you. And then where, where are the people that keep all their feelings bottled up inside? Like you're not going to raise your hand probably. Uh, yeah. Other people are pointing you out, but you're not pointing yourself out, right? And, and you, you ever feel like you, 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 there's just so much going on inside you and so much fear and so much anxiety? Well, we learn a couple things. It's that creation groans in verse 19 through 22. It says that, um, it says that we know, verse 22, creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. We're not going to be talking about childbirth tonight. I don't want to get into that. But, um, but uh, from what I've been told, it's painful. I've never experienced it myself. Um, but when it's talking about creation, it's talking about people who aren't Christians. It's talking about people who don't have the hope of Christ. And, and, and why are they groaning? Because today's successes and failures for them are the be-all, end-all. If they bomb a test, they got no other hope. Yeah, if they don't get asked to prom, they're a failure. Yeah, they, don't, they don't have what we have to look forward to. So, so they groan for a reason that they're hopeless. But then it says that we as people who believe in Christ, we groan. Verse 23, not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, that's Christians, we groan inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption of sons. So we know why they groan, but why do we groan? Because today's failures make us yearn in the deepest part of our emotions for our future with Jesus. Because we know that things are going to be perfect one day, but they're not now. And we're living in this in-between, and it's so hard. But here's what is so cool and so comforting. Not only does creation groan, not only do we groan as believers, God groans for us. Look at it. Verse 26 Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. That's really cool. I wish we had time to unpack that. But when you don't know what to pray or what to say when you pray and you think you're a really bad prayer, God's praying for you <laughs> to Himself, putting into words what you can't. And not only is He praying for you, and why does he pray for us? Because he loves us enough to walk with us through all our successes and our failures. Not only does he pray for us, not only does he intercede for us. In verse 28, it says, We know that for all those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So even when you bomb a test, even when you screw up, God takes that screw up, that bad event, and he turns it around on its head to make you more like him. Because look at verse 29, it says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, those who are called according to his purpose. Well, how do we know that God's got this all figured out? For whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Before there was such a thing as an earth, before God created an earth, he knew there'd be a guy named Gabe. And he knew there'd be a guy named Kurt and a girl named Alexandra. And I could go on. He, he knew you would exist. And you bombed the test. You got cut from the team. You messed up a situation in your life. And you said, oops. But God didn't say, oops, because he already knew you would do that. And he already had a plan to redeem that oops for your good and his glory. So God loves you in your successes and in your failures. 
And here's the final thing. God never stops loving you. This is, the, this is, one, of the, like, this is one of my favorite sections of this passage. We're just going to kind of read it together starting in verse 31. It says, what then shall we say to these things, this awesome reality that God is working in our life and turning all things into good? What shall we say? Like, what's our proper response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who didn't spare his own son, but also gave him up for us, how will we not also with him who graciously gave us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, he was the one who was raised at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. So, whoa, not only is the Holy Spirit groaning for us, putting into words what we can't put into words, Jesus is also sitting at the right hand of the Father asking requests on our behalf too. You've got like a tag team. Who is to condemn? Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written, for your sake we're being killed all day long, we're regarded as sheep to the slaughter. No, in all these things, these things meaning God working all for good in your life, in his glory, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor angels nor rulers nor present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor death nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ Jesus our Lord. It asks the question, if God's for us, who can be against us? Who should we be afraid of? What should we be afraid of if God is doing all these things for us? Good question. We shouldn't be afraid of anything. And then it says, what could separate us from God? I've got a picture. I took that picture um, a week and a half ago of the Golden Gate Bridge. I thought it was a pretty good picture. Uh, I thought I did a pretty good job on that, you know? Um, but what's so interesting is they, they said if that bridge were to collapse, thankfully it didn't when I was on it, if that bridge were to collapse, that the trip to get from one side to the other would be an hour long because you have to drive all the way around the bay. So it's this huge separation from one side to the other. What would it take to separate you from God's love if you are a Christian, if you have put your faith in Jesus? Nothing. It says three times, who can separate Satan can't separate you from God's love. Nobody else can separate you from God's love, no matter what terrible things they do to you or what hurtful things they say to you. You can't even separate yourself from God's love. Nobody can separate you from God's love. And it says, so what do we say to these things? In verse 37, it says, we are more than conquerors. That word is, is upernikomen, which means like, it's, the word is, it's in Greek. It's not an English word. Um, it, and it means you are super conquerors or hyper conquerors. So look at the person next to you and say, you're a super conqueror. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so you needed that encouragement, you know. So, so how do we deal with this? That we know that God loved us first, that God loves us in our successes and our failures, and that he'll never stop loving us. How do we respond to this? Five ways to punch the fear of failure in the face. And here's the first one. First one is pray. Some of you... And you've talked to me, you really struggle praying because you're like, Matt, I, I pray, my prayer lasts like 30 seconds long, I pray for my food, I pray for my dog, and I can't think of anything else to pray for, and I know I should be praying for more things, and my life really stinks, but I don't know what to pray for. Just, hey, Isaiah, up here, just, just pray. Some cool things happen. Think about this. No matter how super spiritual you think you are, if you're a Christian, here are all the things going on when you pray. When you pray, the first thing that happens is the Holy Spirit starts praying for you. In groans that only God can understand. You don't hear it going on, but it's happening. 
as you're praying, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father, and Satan is trying to accuse you of doing things, and, and Jesus is like putting his hand in Satan's face and saying, I died for that sin, 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 and he's interceding for you. The heavenly Father that used to be your enemy now is your heavenly Father, your Abba, which is a term of endearment, and he's like, you're praying, and you think you're saying really boring things, but he's leaning forward listening to you like a parent listening to a toddler talk about his imaginary friend. All those things are going on when you pray, even if it doesn't sound that great. So if there's something you're afraid of, the first thing to do is pray about it. The next thing to do is pursue the glory of God over the approval of people. Um, Every once in a while, I run into people who I went to school with, and I know I should be I, I wish I was a little more confident when I was in school, but I really tried to impress these people. I really tried because they were cool. And now I see them. You know, we've been out of high school for a few years. They're driving minivans. They've got dad bods. I mean, I do too, but you know, they got, they got dad bods. Their idea of a big night is binging Netflix, This Is Us all night. Like, 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 they, they have become the people they used to make fun of. And I, yeah, not to judge those people, but I'm like, why was I so concerned about impressing them and succeeding to win their approval? I should have been trying to win God's approval. So maybe our greatest fear shouldn't be failure, but succeeding at things that don't matter in eternity, right? So pursue the glory of God above the approval of people. Next one is, I should have, like... I, whatever, I should have changed this up. To, but prepare to have ex, some explaining to do. I should have prepared to have some explaining to do. Uh, when you start living for God's glory and you start pretty much saying, you know, in a very nice way, not like Selah would say it, but like forget you to people who, uh, you know, who, who have these expectations of you and you're just living for the glory of God, people are going to ask like, why are you not freaking out about this ACT? It's coming up in April. Like, it's coming up soon. Like, like, you should be freaking out. This is like the last time you can take it to get your scholarship. Why are you not freaking out? It's because, hey, I can bomb the ACT, but that doesn't stop God's plan for me. So if Christ, non-Christians are not going to understand that logic. They're not going to understand that hope. So that's one like 1 Peter 3.15. You can be prepared to give a defense for the hope that lies within you. So just by the way that you approach things that most people are fearful of, you can actually be a witness for God. You can be a difference maker in your school. The next thing is look back in your past and see how God has used your failures for his good and his glory. Um, I'm a little bit older than you, I know. So I can kind of look back on some things that happened in my life that I can see now how God has used for his glory. But some of you have already had some of those experiences that you can look back on. I thought I was going to be a hotshot attorney when I was in college, and I actually took the, the LSAT, the law school admission test. I got into um, UVA, which is one of the top law schools in the country, and I was very excited about that. Um, and um, during the summer, between my undergrad and when I was going to go to UVA, my financial aid fell through. And I was like, well, I can't, pretty, I can't pay $80,000 a year to go to college, so I'm going to stay home for a year. And I was so bummed. I felt like a big old failure. But in that year that I was back, it turned into more than a year, um, I met someone named April, and then like a year later, we got married, and then that same year, God called me to be a youth pastor here, and a year later, I had this little booger named Addison, or April had her, um, I mean, I had something to do with it too, but you know, like, <laughs> all that, yeah, I should stop there, yeah, but, 
here's what I'm trying to say. God turned what I considered to be a failure into something that I can look back on now and say, God, thank you, thank you, thank you for letting my financial aid fall through. So look back on the past to see how God's used failures for his good and his glory. And the final thing is pause. Pause. Rest in the fact that God is always loving you. Sometimes I think we're so afraid of failure because we don't take the time to talk to God, to listen to God in his word, and receive God's love. You cannot, re- you cannot receive God's love with your Bible closed. You have to stop. You have to open your Bible. You have to take in his love letter to you. This is such a cool verse, and I was going to leave you with this. Psalm 4.8. Sometimes when I can't sleep, I pull this verse up on my phone and read it. It says, In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. So what's making you lose sleep? What are you afraid of failing? Give it to God tonight. Because God's love for you (laughs) is not performance-based. You are so much more to God than a score on a test. So let's pray, and we'll get out of here. Uh, Father, thank you for bringing us together tonight. God, thank you for your love. It sounds so almost pithy to say it. I feel like we say it too often and mean it way too little. But God, your perfect love casts fear out. When we realize that we had nothing to do with any of the process by which you saved us, you're saving us, and you ultimately save us. God, it just makes us think, wow, what a God. If you're for us, if you really are, and I believe you are, if you're doing all those things that we just learned that you're doing in our lives, who can be against us? What can we fear? What could stop you from accomplishing your plan in us? Nothing. I pray that you'll give us the trust to believe that and that we'll give our fears over to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening to the Refuel podcast. If you have any questions or would like to review the notes from this podcast, be sure to download the Refuel app from the App Store on any mobile device.